Hello everyone and welcome to this Summer School Public Lecture in Finance. We're very excited today to have a very special guest. Andrew Dell is our speaker today. He is the CEO of HSBC Africa. He is an amazing expert in emerging markets and this is the focus of his presentation today. We're very excited and looking forward to it. Before, uh, well, he's been He's been CEO since 2012, but he has had a long career with HSBC. He started there as head of emerging market syndicate with the task of developing the emerging market debt business. Obviously, under his supervision, um, the business of HSBC in Africa has grown strongly. Um, just to give you a couple of anecdotes about him before he started his career with HSBC. He uh, did a number of different things. Uh, he started as a rough diamond broker. Then he, was, uh, then he ran a venture capital boutique. Then he worked for Industrial Bank of Japan. And before that, he ran the emerging market primary business for Dutch bank ING. So I'm sure he will have a lot of episodes and stories to tell us about his life, among other things. Um, let me mention, last but not least, that he is a former LSE student. He did his undergraduate degree here and then went on to Wharton uh, to continue his studies. So let me cut this brief introduction uh, now because what we want to hear is what Andrew has to tell us himself. So please join me in welcoming Andrew Dell. Thank you. Good, so good evening, everybody. Good afternoon, indeed. Although um, it definitely feels like afternoon. Having come in from Africa um, yesterday, you know, last night or the night before, I was finding myself sitting there at 9 o'clock thinking it was about half past 5, because clearly in South Africa, in Southern Africa at least, it's, um, it's winter time, so it gets dark promptly at 6. So I was falling into the typical trap of coming to Europe and thinking that it was much earlier in the day than it actually was. Um, it's a privilege to be talking to all of you. Um, I know you come and just looking around, I, I, I know from the back, your backgrounds, you come from lots of different places. Looking at the audience is very visibly the case. Um, my lecture, or I call it a lecture, my presentation to you is you know, quite personal. It's not meant to be kind of heavy duty economics at all. Um, it'll be a little bit anecdotal as well. It'll reflect, hopefully, some of the things that I've seen in a practical sense working in emerging markets for as long as I have. Um, as you can see, I've thrown up a sort of sub, some subheadings, some questions, some, some observations, you know, emerging markets into the mainstream sort of question mark. You know, is it a mainstream investor class? Is it something different? That's from an investor perspective. I'll also touch upon some of the unintended consequences of policy. If you look at the global financial crisis in 2008-2009, that led to some very significant changes in the global financial system, which I'm going to touch upon but not spend too much time on. But I'm also going to just hopefully illustrate a little bit how they impact in an unintended way upon the emerging markets and upon development. I'll also touch upon technology and some of the demographic and other changes that occur 
and are occurring. Um, and try and project a little bit forward as to some of the things that may become themes and trends on a going forward basis. Depending on where you come from, some of you will be extremely familiar with technological and also behavioural changes that happen in emerging markets in the way that people act in the economic sphere. Uh, some of you will be less so. Um, so I'll probably bring a few of those things hopefully to the fore and compare and contrast a little bit some of the things that have been happening in the G8 as a group um, versus some of the bigger emerging market countries. So let's see if I can make this work. There we go. Okay, so in terms of a general outline, and this is not going to be, as I say, diving deeply into the theory. This is going to hopefully cover a bit of a range of stuff um, and provoke some thoughts and hopefully provoke a few questions towards the end. So if we look at where we are, broadly speaking, down at the bottom left-hand side, growth rates um, in uh, FDI and in G8. FDI is a proxy here for investor flows. Uh, <coughs> as you'll see, flows in emerging markets generally higher than cross-border flows in the G8. Although it's worthwhile noting that clearly in the G8, a lot, you get a lot of cross-border flow between US and the EU, for example, which pushes those numbers up. Generally speaking, when you look at portfolios, moving on to portfolio flows for a second, generally speaking, on a risk-adjusted basis, when you're talking about portfolio flows, and again, let's simplify it down to bonds and equities for a second, typically the drivers of portfolio flow into emerging markets, the, the particular deltas will be driven by factors such as when people consider that, that uh, risk in develop, developed markets is fairly fully priced, then people tend to spill over and start to looking at, look at the emerging market space seeking extra, extra returns. There is a very well-defined emerging market asset class that really doesn't get affected by that, which is funds and so on that have mandates to specifically invest in either local currency or emerging market debt or equity. Those, if you like, are relatively static on a short-term basis. So the big flows and the big changes come from unconstrained or semi-constrained money moving into, into and out of emerging markets. I'll give you a very specific example of that um, right now. If you look at, for example, Turkey or you look at South Africa, which are two of the biggest investable emerging markets in this broad region, defined Europe, Middle East and Africa, the other third one typically being Russia. But if we focus on Turkey and South Africa for a second, what you see at the moment is you see big fluctuations in the currency. For example, in South African rand, you'll see big fluctuations um, in relatively short periods of time, in periods of time of a week or two weeks. And there's no underlying, by definition, there's no underlying change in the economic situation, typically. You know, as you'll all know, over a two to three week period, the economic situation doesn't typically change very much. What does change is the inflow and outflow forcing the currency to either appreciate or depreciate. And that is driven largely by perceptions of real rates so, and perceptions of risk. In both cases, there's a lot of political events. Both Turkey and South Africa have a lot of political activity presently and a lot of headline 
risk, which can move positive and negative very fast. Um, they also, in, well, in South Africa's case, you have a falling inflation rate. So a falling inflation rate, by definition, means that for any nominal return, your real rate is, is, is going up. So you see these big flows. Um, so, so those are over and above, and a good illustration of what I was meaning by the non-core piece of emerging markets, the cross-border flow, uh, is driven by such factors. If we look at growth rates, again, if we look at bottom left, average GDP growth rates close to 6% in emerging and below 2% over a long period of time in the G8. This is the underlying fundamental economic trend that drives portfolio investment and indeed FDI into emerging markets over a period of time as people seek the higher growth and therefore the higher return, logically the higher return that comes with that. Um, these are fairly long-term trends. I've, I've chosen just to go from 2000 to 2015. 15 years is sufficient, sufficiently long to, to make sense, but it also encompasses the global financial crisis in the middle of that period. So you'll see some spikes and downwards. And if you look at GDP in 2009 on the G8 side, you know, that's, that's negative. So that's the fundamental underlying reason on the long term why people in developed markets wish to invest in developing or emerging markets because of higher growth rates. And of course, that tends to reinforce itself. The more capital flow you have, the higher the growth rate tends to be. The other factor and this is a proxy by definition, the other factor that tends to weigh heavily in people's uh, investment decisions is perceptions of political risk, political instability, um, uncertainty. Left-hand side will show you, and these are standard deviations, but will show you African political stability, again Africa as a proxy for, for emerging markets generally. Um, generally you know, below an average G8, not surprisingly above, but you get some uh, interesting changes. What's interesting when you look at the bottom, the deltas, those standard deviations actually don't change that much, again, over a reasonably long period of time. Slightly shorter time series here from 2002 out to 2015. But broadly telling you, one, it doesn't change that much over a long period of time, at least the perception doesn't. And secondly, instability is clearly a bigger factor in emerging markets than it is in the G8, as one would instinctively think, but this is illustrated here. But also, it's interesting to note that despite the instability, and despite the relatively <coughs> static instability, if you like, not limited change in instability, people still perceive there is better returns, but there are better returns to be had in emerging markets on an adjusted uh, basis. So another way of thinking about this is to say, when you have these longer series, I think the case is probably well made that the GDP numbers tend to grow faster, FDI tends to grow faster, stability or instability tends to remain reasonably static. So if those long-term trends are in place, one would think, or one could think, that it's a bit of a no-brainer in terms of an investment case to be always investing in emerging markets because of those factors. Now clearly, what tends to happen and what causes people difficulty is a lot of it's to do with time horizon. Because if you're going to invest in emerging markets, you need to have the stomach, you need to have the ability, if you're an investor, to ride out fluctuations. Because 
all of the things that we've illustrated so far also point to a less stable, less static environment. So when one looks at a 10, 15 year cycle, if you're kind of in there for the long term, you tend to do quite well. But clearly you can get it horribly wrong. Now it used to be the case that emerging markets were synonymous with political instability and political surprise. And I think it's probably still true, although I would say if you take Africa, for example, which probably is perceived by m many people as being the most difficult group of emerging market countries, difficult in inverted commas, often when people think about Africa, they think about absence of democracy, violent regime change, uh, internal civil war, cross-border conflict, um, corruption, none of which are particularly good things especially if you're in the middle of it. But the reality is, if you look at Africa, I would contend that at this point, and I haven't illustrated this here, but I would contend that actually democracy is, is at its <coughs> most vibrant and functional. Violence with, within states and between states is again at a post-colonial, so post-1960 low. Um, economic growth is pretty strong, and most of the actual social metrics are in better state than they have been over a period of time. So despite that um, image of difficulty, the reality is that in somewhere like Africa, you're in a more stable, more investable, more, um, more favourable sphere. But of course, when one talks about Africa, you talk about 50 plus countries, so there is a huge difference between the best and the worst. So, as with many things in life, in emerging markets, the devil is in the details. So one should not generalise about Asia, one should not generalise about Latin America, one should not generalise about the Middle East or Africa or Eastern Europe. Because different countries, by definition, behave in very, very different places. But if one draws out the aggregate of the detail at a country level or even a regional level, you do end up with a situation where you can, I think, make a good argument that it's less difficult, less volatile than it has been. And that's even before you start looking at what's been happening in the G8. You know, France recently, obviously Brexit, Trump, all these things are not necessarily predictable, even the last election recently here, not necessarily predictable political events, um, which tend to have short-term blips in the market. What you see from a market perspective now is that often markets trade through what previously were very, very market-shifting and dislocating political events. So if you like, maybe volatility or, um, if I correct that, rather, rather unpredictability becomes a new normal, which I think is perhaps where we are in terms of the way financial markets trade. You also have, underlying all of this, enormous, enormous liquidity on a global basis. Very low or almost zero risk-free rates in major economies generates enormous amounts of liquidity. Enormous amounts of liquidity looks for a home, looks for a return. So that also buoys investment. It buoys stock markets, it buoys emerging markets, it buoys bond markets particularly. So you have this very buoyant liquidity, bubbling away and holding things at a very 
apparently very static level. Now, the risk there, of course, is that if that consensus changes, then you will get pricing corrections that are meaningful um, and quite sharp. I'll move on, if I may, to, to another broad theme. If we look at the global financial crisis, 2008-2009, um, and I'm not going to attempt to just run, to run through a quick history there, it will be familiar to most of you, but it is worth picking out that there were some very large, very well-known financial institutions that either did fail or were bailed out by their respective governments. So what did that lead to? That led to a change in regulation. It led to an enormous pressure on capital. Um, it led to, to a sense, a public sense, that the financial system had perhaps let people down. And what it then meant was that institutions were forced to hold higher and higher amounts of capital from a regulatory perspective. That could take the form either of ec true equity or alternative tier one equity, which is petrols and other specially structured, structured instruments. But in any event, the capital requirements were pushed up and it's outside the scope of what I want to talk to today, but there's a lot of work that one can look at to see how the capital has been pushed up in financial institutions. So what does that do? Well, it does a couple of things. First of all, it constrains a financial institution's ability to lend. Secondly, because of the requirement to hold higher capital, it starts to push up the returns that are required by a financial institution to, to maintain the same return on equity that they had previously. By definition, the equity base is bigger, so the return on equity drops if nothing else changes, so you have to push your returns up. So that does two things. It either means that you start to accept a lower return on your equity if you're an investor in financial institution. That has happened. But it also means that the pressures on lending in terms of rates that are charged to customers are ever upward. The other thing that happens at the same time, and I'll come back to that a bit later, but the other thing that happens at the same time around the global financial crisis is that people start to look at conduct, accountability, financial crime, all of these other non-financial metrics are very, very much um, brought sharply into focus, compliance generally. So you're probably sitting there wondering why the internal machinations of a bank are important. And that would be a very fair question. And the, the reason they become important is that it starts to push up costs and it starts to change behavior. So for example, if you're, I don't, I'm not sure how many of you will have looked at correspondent banking, but uh, some of you will. Correspondent banking, just the simple arrangements between different banks to clear one customer's payments into another country via another bank. So that represents a risk, a counterparty risk between banks, as well as risks on the underlying clients. Now, the result of all this regulation and changes in capital and changes in the non-financial regulation is that you start looking at your correspondent banking relationships and you start asking yourself, how confident are you as a bank in the customer's and the underlying payments of the bank that you are clearing for. And if you're not sure, in a new world where financial crime, compliance, senior manager regime, conduct becomes incredibly important, 
you start to become a little bit more risk averse than you used to. So the result of that is that when you look at your relationships between banks, for example, you then require higher returns for any given piece of business that you used to do. So the result of that, if you're sitting rationally in a large bank, is you start to say, okay, so this bank in country X, country Y, how much money, how much business do they give us? What's our revenue profile? What do the underlying clients look like? And again, if you have uncertainty around that, you make digital, you end up making digital decisions and saying, actually, we no longer wish to have a clearing relationship, a correspondent banking relationship with bank X or bank Y. So the net, the net consequence of that is you start to reduce your correspondent banking relationships. If you do that, banks in emerging markets find it harder and harder to clear dollars, for example, or euros or sterling on behalf of their underlying clients. Now again, this is a sort of arcane, slightly train spotters type of discussion, but why does it matter? It matters because if you're trying to de enable development in emerging markets, the very simple mechanics, the very simple plumbing of making payments cross-border becomes incredibly, incredibly important. And if big banks start to exclude smaller banks from emerging markets from the financial system, ultimately you have a less efficient payment system. So that becomes a dampener ultimately on, on economic growth. So that's one economic consequence, unintended consequence, because I'm sure no regulator, absolutely confident, no regulator would have sat down post the financial crisis and said, one of the reasons we got into this, this you know, fix was we had massively over-leveraged institutions in Europe and the US. So let's introduce some regulation which will have the consequence of excluding emerging market banks and customers from the financial system. Nobody would have thought that through. Certainly nobody would have had that as an, as an intention, but that is, is what is beginning to uh, happen at the margin. The other point is, to back that up, is extra jurisdictional reach by regulators and legislators. So in order to protect their own systems, they're reaching out into the, into the global system. So there's one unintended consequence. <coughs> what we look at now, of moving on to another, another thing, is simple things around money and about, around transactions. Typically, as you develop, you move from a cash economy, eventually into into simple bank accounts and then obviously as people gain in terms of wealth and income into more sophisticated products which, which aren't that sophisticated but they are, they're very sophisticated if, you, if you're starting from a point of not having a bank account such as just deposits and mortgages and short-term lending and so on. <coughs> but again, if we talk, if we just develop the theme I touched upon a minute ago, when you have lots of regulation coming in, it becomes very expensive for people to open bank accounts. I opened my first bank account as a schoolboy and I picked the bank because it happened to be next to the train station that I got off when I walked to school. And I walked in one day in my school uniform and said, here's a very small amount of money, I'd like to open a bank account. And they, went, they said, absolutely no problem at all. Within probably two weeks they gave me a checkbook, fine. Probably two weeks after that, they gave me a check, back, check guarantee card. You know, I was 16, 17 maybe. 
You cannot, cannot do that in the GA. You can't do that really anywhere in the world. There are some emerging market um, economies where actually you can open a bank account with your name and a cell phone number. Right? But that's, if you're interested, you can ask me a question about that. I'll talk about that. But the point is, as individual customers find it harder and harder to actually open, just the simple thing of opening a bank account, then, then transactionally they start to drop outside of the banking system, or not to say drop outside, drop outside would imply they were in it in the first place, but find it difficult to enter the banking system. So, conceptually, this is a slightly anecdotal story, but it's based upon what actually really happens. In large parts of the emerging markets, in Africa in particular, you can transfer, whether it's SMSs, um, talk minutes, or data, phone to phone. Right? You can't always do that in developed markets. So conceptually, how do you buy a chicken in an African village? Assuming you have no cash. Okay? In a sense, I've just answered the question for you. If you've both got a mobile phone, you can negotiate airtime minutes, or any of the three and you decide what your chicken's worth. Once you've determined that it's worth, I don't know, 100 minutes, I don't know what a chicken's worth, 100 minutes, 50, I don't know. Once you've determined your price, you can do a transaction. You can also conceptually move into what effectively becomes interest. Because if you say it's 50 minutes, and then the guy says, well, the buyer says, I haven't got 50 minutes just now, I'm expecting to get some airtime next week, I'll pay you 25 now and I'll give you another 30 in a week's time, you've actually put a price on money, you've got the rudiments of interest if you wish. Right? So that's a somewhat anecdotal story, but it illustrates how you potentially in emerging markets get alternative forms of currency developing. Everyone knows about Bitcoin, but this is just on a day-by-day -day basis. You can also, I might, if I've got time, come back to this later, start to transact with other things like electricity credits, for instance. My personal favourite, though, is airtime or, or, or telecom-driven money because nearly everybody has a phone. Right? And actually, in emerging markets now, the proportion of smartphones is increasing. So again, you've got ability to do apps on the top of that. Of course, what people don't think about with, mo with money most of the time is actually the credit risk of the central bank except in some of the more extreme emerging markets where you have high levels of counterfeit currency and so on and so on, you know, in, it becomes a, a significant credit factor. You know, here in the UK or in the US or the rest of Europe, most, most countries in the world, in fact, you'll happily take cash across things. The level of counterfeiting is quite low. But um, in certain countries, you know, it's quite high, so then you have demand for alternative things. And in certain countries, of course, you get currencies that are fundamentally unstable and become worthless, so you end up defaulting into a f another foreign currency, either a neighbour or a US dollar or, or something else. So I think on a look-going-forward basis, what we're going to see is the growth of alternative means of, tra of transacting, alternative mediums of exchange, which could be airtime minutes or indeed, indeed other things. So there's another sort of thematic that can happen. Those graphs at the top are Standard Bank of South Africa, JP Morgan Chase, and HSBC. That shows you that the ratio, the equity components and the capital, what I should have perhaps done is done a comparison 
as to what they were 10 years ago, but needless to say, they were all much lower in terms of capital. That illustrates the point I was making earlier about the requirement for more and more capital as a response to regulation, which in turn pushes up the um, requirements um, for return. So if we take that as a starting point, just as a little bit of a reminder, let's now look and see, in a practical sense, what this means. Made a couple of assumptions, five-year tenor of a loan, uh, 100 basis points up front, 250 basis points of margin, floating coupon semi-annual, etc. Um, liquidity premium is in there. I'll <coughs> skip liquidity premium for now. If somebody wants to know about it, I can talk about it later. What you have on the left-hand side is that for a typical return on risk-weighted assets, just as a quick reminder for people, if you want to get a return on equity, first of all, you've got to figure out what your risk-weighted assets is. You take your equity base, you can do a calculation from that. Ultimately, when you're pricing a loan, you price it on a return on risk-weighted assets basis rather than on a return on equity, but there is a mathematical, mathematically fixed relationship between the two. If you look on the left-hand side, that vertical line is a typical type of return. If you look at ratings, what you see quite clearly is that for that set of criteria on a loan, your cut-off point, your break-even point is somewhere in investment grade at, at BAA1, BAA2, so what it tells you, quite simply, is that in order to get your returns to move those left-hand bars to be, if you like, towards the right-hand side, you have to clearly you know, price, price higher. Um, it follows quite logically that the more capital you apply against a risk, a particular risk, which is what happens, the more you have to push your pricing up in order to still maintain your returns on risk-weighted assets. If we look on the other side, Move across here a little bit. If you look on the other side, if we look at weighted average cost of capital for two corporates in different markets, on the developed side and on emerging side, again, let's make a couple of simplifying assumptions, which are very much that simplifying assumptions with an equity equity to debt mix of 60/40, and cost of debt of of cost of equity of 10 and 16%, cost of debt 4 and 9% again, representative developed market and emerging market. Tax rates, again, holding it sim similar or the same. Your weighted average cost of capital, significantly different, 7% plus, 12% minus uh, in developed and emerging markets. That makes an enormous difference to the return if you look at the corporate space. So this side connects across here. What banks do and how banks' behavior changes, changes the cost of debt for emerging market corporates. Of course, it's not, only as, it's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as that in itself. Your risk-free rates, government bond curves, etc., also have a major impact. Clearly, in the US or Europe, risk-free rates almost zero, so therefore corporate rates or financial institution borrowing rates again are spread um, to a very low nominal rate. Clearly, if you go into the emerging markets, it's not untypical to have 5, 6, 7, 8, or even 10% return on so-called um, risk-free. But I think what we see there is big changes in terms of as banks price more aggressively, as debt becomes more expensive, cost of capital for corporates also changes. 
touched upon here some of the things I've men mentioned already, but just to add in term structure of interest rates, typically in emerging markets is very positive. You do get inverted curves at times, but typically it's a, a quote-unquote normal structure of interest rates. The further out you go, the higher the rates. Um, but what the consequence of different costs of capital between emerging and developed markets leads to really a couple of things. At least there are many different things, but two themes I'll just bring out. One, a developed market corporate investing in emerging markets, building a business, buying a business, building a factory, distributing product, has an inherent advantage due to their lower weighted average cost of capital. Right? Um, that makes it that explains the behavior of many multinationals. As they grow, it's not only, you know, they typically go outside of their home market, market or markets, if they're a big regional corporate, um, in search of additional return, in search of additional sales. But keep in mind that with a lower weighted average cost of capital, they have a competitive advantage in terms of moving into emerging markets. Conversely, is also true. An emerging market corporate as we sometimes say, you know, the right company, the wrong zip code. Um, you know, a brilliant business that just happens to be located in a more risky country has a higher weighted average cost of capital, typically. So logically, if you were to apply the same logic and theory, they would never move into the developed market. But they do very often and very frequently because they seek cash flows that are lower cost from a risk perspective. And one way to drive a return in their own business is to bring their weighted average cost of capital down. So if they make an acquisition elsewhere and benefit by moving into a lower weighted average cost of capital by location, they can drive their own returns on equities up. They can also hedge against some of the instability we've spoken about. Very, you know, very, there's a lot of uh, theory around this and there's a lot of detail, there's a lot of math around it, which I'm completely going to skip over. Um, for now. If we look at markets and we look at market caps, everyone knows developed market companies typically are bigger. These are big global companies on the left. But the scale is enormous. Right? Look at all these top 10 US market caps versus, and I've just taken South Africa as, a, as an example, as a pretty developed market, literally 10, 20 times the size in terms of market capitalization. Right? Um, and part of that is sheer size, but also it's to do with multiples. So if you look at the bottom total market cap across different exchanges, again, it tells you a very similar story. Enormous market caps. The market caps on the left obviously directly track through into the New York uh, Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. But what it also tells you is that if you're an emerging market corporate and you get to a certain size, you probably outgrow your own capital market which explains the phenomenon of why you get dual listings or indeed listings into the big global exchanges. You'll have seen, some of you will have noticed Shanghai, for example, or Hong Kong growing and becoming still not as big as the US, but still as a proportion uh, growing in terms of size. But it also means, back to, my, back to our corporates, at the point where the corporates has grown sufficiently and is a big enough business with a sufficient geographic and business line diversity, if they go and access those super deep pools of capital, they in turn start to reduce their own cost of capital. So what you can do 
if you're a big enough corporate, and you can probably only do this one time, but at the point where you go from a local listing to a kind of global listing, you start to bring your cost of equity, in this case, your cost of equity down, which in turn, as your cost of equity starts to fall, so does your weighted average cost of capital, which in turn starts to drive returns for investors. So that explains a lot why people eventually often move off from their own domestic exchanges and either do a dual listing or a listing in the US or typically the, U it's typically the US or the UK. Not exclusively, but typically. <coughs> so equally, you see some very big corporates, and one or two of the ones mentioned previously, um, but it's, this, is tr this applies especially to mining companies and resource companies who are listed on big global exchanges but actually don't have any business or very little business in their, in their country of incorporation or their country of listing. So their businesses can often be, particularly in the case of resource companies, almost entirely in emerging markets, but with a listing that's in uh, the US or, or Europe, meaning they reduce their cost of capital and yet benefit from some of those larger returns that are available um, from developing the world-class resources that it's a question of geography. In big continents like Africa, there's an awful lot of resources. And that is that's a function of geology, which in other words is a function of age and size, um, which, is why, which is why people mine there. So if we move on to, I'm slightly <coughs> conscious of time here, there's a convenient clock there, which is good. Um, if we look at technology, and again, this is a little bit, a little, I'll be slightly anecdotal here. If we look at high-speed rail, you look at solar, um, I'll spend a little time on those two. China has more high-speed rail laid down with sets and, you know, with the track and train sets than the rest of the world combined, right? Um, and that is not only just a function of being a fairly large country, but, it, you know, it's a large country, but it's, there are bigger, there are bigger land masses. It's a function of a very you know, clear decision that that was a way to go forward and use the technology. And if you like, use a technological leapfrogging. If you think about other countries that in the past have had lots of high-speed rail, still do. Japan comes to mind. But what China's done is taken that, developed their own technology, and built rail track like nobody previously, at least in the 20th, 21st century. Um, so now they have a technological advantage um, and in rail, generally, they're hyper-competitive in terms of bidding in emerging markets for new rail lines, be it freight, be it passenger, be it whatever else. Also, solar technology has developed enormously in the last five years. And this is something that's not necessarily top of people's mind, but solar really had a huge boost in Europe, largely from subsidised solar as part of a general renewable program. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but it's really found its natural home in many of the emerging markets, in Asia for sure, but also um, in Africa. So the cost of solar generation, let's go back, the cost of solar generation in Africa is now a fraction of the cost of conventional conventional generation. So if you take South Africa, for example, which has abundant coal, has more than enough coal for probably two, three hundred years of power generation at current rates, yet the cost of solar has dropped, the cost of the panels have dropped so much that 
dropped by more than 75% that the cost of solar generation in South Africa is now below a traditional large-scale coal-fired power station. So I think we're at an interesting inflection point, and I'm not going to spend too much on green economics and environmental impact, but we're at a very interesting inflection point because the debate around solar, around energy, for instance, has been it's, it's problematic for an emerging market country to be told by Europe or the US not to burn coal, right, which is what's been happening for the last 20 years, um, on the basis that Europe and then subsequently the US has been burning coal for power generation for a couple of hundred years or 150 years. So there's a problematic sort of social and political um, challenge around that. But in a sense, the argument moves quickly and South Africa would have said 10 years ago, we have to burn coal, we have no choice, we have it in the ground, we're a relatively poor country, we, we must do this. Now, the reality is that solar has become cheaper. There's a very specific reason for that, which I'll come into in, in a second. Let's move on and just slightly change tack again. Drivers of development, drivers of growth, drivers of superior growth, when I looked at compulsory education, I was startled to see that actually there's a whole bunch of emerging market countries that have more compulsory education than a lot of G8 ones. Now, compulsory education is not necessarily the measure of technological advancement. You know, you're at a stage in your lives where you've gone beyond the compulsory education <coughs> phase. But in terms of basic literacy and basic, basic building blocks, it is a, it is a good indicator. And... I was particularly startled by Singapore, which apparently, and I'm still not quite sure that I've checked it a couple of times, I'm still not quite sure that data's right. L relatively low number of years of compulsory education, but phenomenal output in terms of, of, of sciences in particular, maths. And then some other countries, like Brazil, with very high numbers. Perhaps more interesting, look at smartphone ownership on the right-hand side. The US, and this is smartphone rather than, t rather than mobile phone, US obviously, the or not obviously, but, but predictably enough, the highest perhaps. But if you look at some of the places like India, Ghana, South Africa, China, those proportions are actually quite high in my opinion and growing very, very fast. So what does that do? That enables a lot of technology and enables a lot of fourth generation type of leapfrogging of um, technology because as we've seen many, many, many times, follower countries move much, much quicker and also move in a very divergent way and find new paths to apply technology. So I think that's a great pointer to the future. Um, urbanisation. I'll talk a little bit about urbanisation. We're talking there about population, land, resources. Um, if you look again, left-hand side, the sort of emerging versus G8 on the right-hand side. Um, urban population growth, 0.74 in G8 versus overall population growth of 0.42. Look on the left, 3.1 3 versus 1.9, call it, um, on the emerging market side. So one, the numbers are bigger, but secondly, the, the delta between the urban growth and the average growth is much, much bigger. Um, emerging markets have to urbanise for a number of reasons. One, it's more efficient in terms of economic things, but also they cannot deliver services into the rural poor in a cost-effective way. And this applies across vast spectrums of the world. So the only way they can deliver the kind of modern 21st century social services is if the population urbanises. So that's kind of imperative. But it's also a natural instinct of people. 
Um, you know, the myth still exists that certain cities are paved with gold. Uh, Johannesburg, this, which is, is the city of gold originally. Um, amazing that you have people from Ethiopia in Johannesburg. And the reality of people, it's not amazing that there are people from Ethiopia, it's how they got there. Because one thing they did not do is get on a plane in Addis and fly to Johannesburg. Typically they walked. If you look at a map, it's a heck of a long way from Ethiopia to Johannesburg. But that's what they do. And also if you look at migration out of North, East and West Africa into Europe, or out of some of the more troubled parts of the Middle East, people get up and go and get up and walk in search of economic opportunity, also in search of obviously political and social and um, other stresses and wars and violence. But often people do amazing, amazing things um, which are outside the, the, the scope of most people's imagination if you've grown up in um, North America or Western Europe. I mentioned another factor around solar. Uppington is a small town, a smallish town in the Northern Cape, which is the centre of South Africa's solar generation capacity. 3,700 hours of sunshine compared to 1,700 plus in Berlin. Um, obviously, Germany did a lot of renewables. It's almost impossible to run a coal-fired um, power station in Germany these days because of various regulatory changes. But there's a straightforward natural thing. It's more than double the amount of sunshine. So it makes running solar incredibly, um, incredibly economic. So it, it gets driven by pure economic drivers as opposed to social or political drivers. As a result, graphs on the left. Now, you see China 2015 big jumps in power co uh, solar consumption. The small little dots, which you can barely see, are actually South Africa and Africa, but they will grow very, very fast. G8 solar, high, but probably tailing off. Consumption per, ca per capita. This one on the left, I think, is very interesting because you have South Africa as the big green bar, and then the bits you can't see almost are the other major countries that are beginning to move into this space. So you can very easily imagine that you move those small dots almost up to similar levels as South Africa. Entirely private sector driven, not subsidised at all, entirely on bids and power purchase agreements. Again, I can talk more about that if somebody's interested. Finally, um, final couple of things before I will move into questions. Demographics, life expectancy at birth. Left-hand side emerging markets, right-hand side as you look at it, G8. More or less static in G8. The bottom line, unfortunately, is Russia, where it's not static. It goes down, up and down. The rest on the left, the emerging market ones, all trending upwards again. This is a long time series from 1960 onwards. What you see, if you look carefully, you'll see there's a yellow line and a green line, which kind of dip and then start to pick up again. Um, that's Kenya and South Africa, which is the advent of AIDS and tuberculosis, which is a particularly nasty a combination of, of, of um, conditions uh, which did drop the life expectancy at birth very significantly and for mortality started to rise very, very, very quickly. That's fortunately been um, reversed with more antiretrovirals and better understanding and better treatment. So those are on upward trends again. Why does that matter? Well, life expectancy matters because it affects productive capacity and cohorts in the, in the population. 
Left-hand side, Africa, age pyramids, right-hand side, Europe. Okay? So what does that tell you? If you take 16 to 65 as a productive age in Europe, it's probably a little bit of a stretch, especially at the bottom, to be honest. I don't think too many people leave school at 16 and go down and, go and work manually anymore, which is probably a good thing. Um, but if you look at that productive age, and then if you say, again, 16 to sort of 55 or 59 on an African side, simply because um, you know, people don't work uh, longer than that, typically. At the moment, you, you could argue that Europe's got a productive age as a proportion of population advantage, but it's pretty easy to see what's going to happen. You know, look at that pyramid on the left-hand side. That is startling. You have a lot of people still coming through. You have a high dependency ratio at the bottom in terms of infants and children, but they're going to move very rapidly into a productive population. Clearly, what's going to happen in Europe is you get this kind of bulge. It's not really a pyramid, is it? You kind of get this pyramid at the top, sat over a block, and then sat over a smaller block at the bottom. As that works through, you're going to get much more dependency uh, later in life. And actually, old, older people are much more expensive to maintain in a family situation than youngsters, actually. So that will have a big, big change. So you can mirror that. Africa is particularly stark, but it's broadly mirrored if we look at other emerging market uh, regions. But those, again, become some major long-term drivers as to why I'd argue, if we combine it with all these technological leapfrogging and education developments, etc., why more than likely you have higher growth in emerging markets. Um, if the trend that I've identified of more stable, more democratic, less violence continues, again, that is a positive. Um, the demographics mentioned here, the technological leap leapfrogging, I would argue that that GDP growth will lead to big shifts in economic influence. It's already happening. It's already very visible. Fundamentally, if you look at a classic perspective of the world, a map perspective of the world, think about it going south, think about it moving east. Right? And it is very much south as well as east. Right? So it's, it is about China, but it's not only about China. And as those economies start to interconnect with each other um, and move forward, I think you know, we have seen the start of a very or rather we are in the, we're already well into a well-developed trend, which is probably going to last, I would suspect, for most, if not all, of our lifetimes. Um, so we're going to see those big shifts. Now, that will lead to other political shifts and so on as we move through time. But again, I'm certainly not going to try and, that's a big subject, and I'm certainly not going to try and tackle that. So some slightly subjective, but also hopefully backed up with some good data, observations around some of the things that are happening in emerging markets. I've spent, as Michaela said at the beginning, I've spent most of my life in emerging markets. And there are reasons for that, which is A, it's very interesting. B, you know, I happen to believe that directing capital efficiently into emerging markets leads to better economic growth or enables better economic growth, which actually starts to facilitate some of the things we've spoken about, but also creates opportunity for large numbers of people and, if you like, you know, lifts lifts a lot of people potentially out of poverty. And I think that's a worthwhile thing to be involved in. So I should try and wrap up. I was meant to finish at 6.30. It's now 6.28, so you have two minutes of your life back. Um, and I'd be happy to take any questions. <coughs> or you can clap. <laughs> <laughs>
seriously, any, any questions? Please. Um, so with regards to uh, kind of your comments on the solar industry and like knowing that you worked at a, a boutique venture capital firm, uh, I'm kind of curious about how, what role venture capital has played in developing that and I guess whether or not uh, those companies are actually domestic companies or international companies. No, it's a, it's a, good, it's a good question and to, th th there is no one answer to that, right? But, but I think what I've seen across the space is there are, there are certain companies in Europe, energy, energy companies in Europe, for example, which were forced by regulation or tax incentives to start to invest in renewables. So they were originally big power companies, but they've built arms of their businesses which are very renewables focused. Right? And because they're power companies in the first place, they at least have knowledge of the power space. So there's one or two, more than one or two, there's a few European companies which were originally power companies which have big, you know, big renewables businesses. The other um, piece is sometimes technology companies that are actually providers or developers of solar panels, for instance. And then they partner with one or other industry um, you know, industry company to really, in a sense, they'll take an equity interest in a project in order really to secure the supply of their manufactured solar panels, for instance, or indeed you'd say the ancillary stuff, be it transformers and you know, all the other kind of kit that you need. The pure VC or the pure um, capital space or financial capital driver, sponsor, if you like, that's still relatively small. It does exist, and typically what those guys are doing is they're investors in or sub-investors in something that's sponsored by an industry provider. Right? So, but the model will change over time because they will move from being just passive equity sponsors or participants to over time actually becoming primary sponsors and then subcontracting in the technology. Because the typical model that often works is a power purchase agreement. So you'll sign with the transmission grid or the national power company, a contract to supply X amount of power at a price of whatever it is. Right? And that's often a take or pay contract. So as long as you're able to supply it, whether they offtake it or not is, is, is less important but you take all of the financial risk. So what, where it's already transitioning is, once things are built, and once things are established and you have a rock solid cash flow, then often the ownership will, trans, will transfer into a more, more pure financial sponsor ownership. Now that can either be pension funds, life insurance companies who want long-term rock solid returns, or venture capital and private equity type of people who are looking for an uptick. But I think, I think what will start to happen is you'll get a more, a higher component of financial sponsor in the form of PE or longer term investor at an earlier stage in the, pro in the projects as the industry matures. But the early stage is all about industry specialists using technology to build power plants and then sign off take agreements. So, so it, it is transitioning. Does that help? Yeah. Good. Please. How does that translate into cash? How does that translate into liquidity? And how is it regulated by, by the bank? Okay, it's not regulated, predominantly, right? Um, and it translates into cash because, you know, if I take... First of all, you need to start from, from why is it possible? 
Now, I don't think, I haven't lived in Europe for a while, but I don't think it's possible in Europe to simply transfer credits between people. You're probably all going to tell me that you can do this all the time, right? But it's very, very, it's extremely common in Africa, for example, in African telecom things. And for example, they run um, TV advertisements around Christmas time. Well, they'll say, well, they'll, they'll, they typically call it something like give a happy. You know, and they've kind of got lots of people singing and dancing and someone's transferring 100 minutes to their grandmother. And that kind of stuff. And that, so that works. So that's the underlying technological piece. The fact that it's very easy that I can simply say, what's your number? Okay, ta-ta-ta, I'll send you 100 minutes. That creates the transactional ability. Right? So as an alternative for source of money, or form of money, if I've given you 100, you can turn to the person next to you and say, you know what, I love your T-shirt. You've got a great LSE T-shirt on there. I love your T-shirt. How much for your T-shirt, right? So in theory, you know, you've transacted, you've sold me a chicken, you've bought yourself a T-shirt. So, I mean, if you like. What you then can move into is time value of money. Because if you don't pay today, you pay part today, part tomorrow, you pay a higher price tomorrow, there you, there's your time value. Or potentially you can transfer that into interest if you want to. So, so that's where I can see some of those things going. And I'll illustrate it maybe, and I'll tie the two technologies together very quickly, if, if I may. Solar will enable, over a period of time, generation of electricity to change fundamentally. Okay? Because if you've got a roof that in the southern hemisphere is north-facing rather than south-facing, and you stick solar panels on it, you've obviously got your source of generation. So if you have two, if you're in a village that is 50 kilometers from the nearest power line, right, let's say, and it doesn't have electricity presently, for the electricity company to generate centrally and connect it with 50 kilometers of copper wire, copper wire is valuable, okay? So if you're in a rural community and there's a lot of copper wire, there's an incentive, I'm not saying it will always happen, but there is an incentive for someone to pinch it and sell it, right? And it does happen. So, but it's more importantly, it's extremely expensive to connect a village that's 50 kilometres, and this, and this is the sort of scale, you know, in a European context, nowhere's 50, I mean, 50 kilometres, you pass dozens of villages along the way. But in, in Africa or other parts of the world, you know, it, you do get these communities that are geographically remote. So that all becomes very expensive. Plus you get transmission losses, and I'm not an electrical engineer, but you know, it's very instinctively obvious between where you generate and you do lots of um, transforming up and down DC to AC, you lose a ton of electricity transmission, you lose a ton of electricity. So if you've got your north-facing roof, you stick a panel on it. Okay? Now conceptually, if, if you connect all those people in a community with a microgrid, okay, and... I'm a grandmother sitting at home and I don't do too much other than a little bit of cooking, a little bit of watching TV, for instance. You're probably a net producer. The grandson down the street maybe sets up a small industrial business or a repair shop or something, has a few tools, is a few power tools, has a, is a net consumer. So you have the two, if they're all connected by a grid, it's pretty easy conceptually to think about a simple meter, either net net producer, net consumer. So just take the two examples. One person is a net producer, one person, and that gets metered and collected, that gets metered and collected, assuming the two are equal. So how do you pay from one to the other? Well, you can actually pay into a system 
or you can actually just transfer airtime into a system. And then you have kind of one guy who's relatively smart who just moves it around, or you can automate all of that. Now, you can do that with money. If you do it with money, then to get the money out, you've then got to access the banking system. You've somehow got to go to an ATM. There may not be an ATM. So if you start substituting airtime or data or SMSs for that, you can easily imagine how technologically one can put this thing together. And this is actually, you know, I've thought about this as an idea. I'm trying to actually see if we can make this work. But, but, but you know, that starts to open up a lot of, lot of things. Now, that's dependent on a couple of things. One, having the telephony or the, the airtime available as a medium of exchange, which has value because every, everybody has a phone. I bet there's nobody in the room who doesn't have a phone, right? But I can tell you in developing economies, everybody has a phone of some sort. So it's got value. You can also automate it very easily. And distributed solar then becomes smaller scale generation. Um, you know, and I'm just using a very simple example there between two people. But if you take that community, why don't you just put a big array on the edge of the community? And then you get into what governments and utility companies could be doing, which is providing those at low cost or no cost in order actually, not necessarily to generate a revenue stream for themselves, but to satisfy a social obligation in a cost-effective way, rather than building another big power plant and a lot of cabling and wiring, and then perhaps not being able to collect the revenue from the thing anyway. So, so that's starting from where you, your question, but also expanding how one could think about some other solutions to those simple, simple basic problems. Please. Sorry, at the back, and then. So my question can be a little bit broad, but just if you give insight, it would be so helpful. So I have been reading some articles recently regarding the shadow banking industry mm. in China and how it has been growing strongly and how it is not well regulated, the similar case that we might have in global financial crisis in 2008. And if this is the case, how would, like, if in a potential crisis in China, how would the emerging markets, especially Africa and China, would be impacted? And how do you see this development recently? There is, yeah, no, thank you. Uh, look, any form of banking that's, that's not regulated presents, a, presents all sorts of risk. Right? Presents risks of bubbles, one. Presents risk of straightforward dishonesty and fraud. Right? Presents risk of excessively high interest rates colloquially loan sharking, etc. Um, so unregulated banking is, you know, is problematic. What inevitably happens when you have tighter and tighter regulation in the regulated space is that alternative things pop up, which, which do, by definition, generate additional risk. So it's, it is a, a very, I mean, you've touched upon a very important concern, which is, you know, are you making the system safer but simultaneously, the, the system, quote unquote, contains less of the financial transactions in aggregate. Right? So, yes, there are risks, the two or three of the things I've touched upon and others. But certainly if you get a, get a shadow banking system developing that is widespread and well used, and then you get a default or a structural upset and a, and a disruption in that shadow banking system, yes, it will have exactly the same analogous impact as a failure in the more formal financial system as it did in the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009. Then your question becomes, is the, 
systemic risk within a country, you mentioned China, but this is a more general point, is the systemic risk within a country or is the systemic strength of the, of the whole system in the country sufficient to withstand what becomes a shock? Right? And if there is sufficient liquidity, sufficient breadth, a shock in, a, in the shadow banking system becomes just that, a shock in a shadow banking system. But again, you, you, you end up with proportionality. So if the shadow banking system becomes big enough to be you know, the bigger part, or indeed just being a significant part of, then obviously your transmission shocks become potentially you know, quite significant. So I think a challenge of regulation, which most regulators will recognise, is to say, we want to be strict, we want to be safe, we want to be clear, we want to be transparent, but we also don't want to have too much that's kind of outside of scope. And it is, a, it is definitely a dilemma. And one of the unintended consequences of, of increasingly strict global regulation is that you do potentially create those spaces outside of the regulated system, which, which, which could, could, be, could be problematic. But it's all a question of degree and a question of the systemic strength of the overall economy. First, we'll come back to you in a second, but please. So I'm curious about the proliferation of, um, you know, mobile payment systems like you mm. talked about before. Has that made it easier for governments to tax uh, informal entrepreneurs? And do you see that as an opportunity for them to invest more in infrastructure? Is that an opportunity for more foreign direct investment? Has that changed the way that governments are taxing at all? I think, um, as yet, it hasn't really broadened the tax base that much. The very famous mobile payment system is M-Pesa in East Africa, which is, a, is run by one of the telephone companies. Um, but that's actually a payments transfer system as opposed to, you know, what I was talking about was, in a sense, using airtime and so on as a currency in and of itself, because M-Pesa actually allows transactions. Um, it hasn't really brought too much into the tax base as yet, but ultimately it could and it should, right? Um, and then what you potentially get towards... If you're thinking about that, and then thinking aloud a little bit here, conceptually, you know, a digital wallet, right, potentially starts to achieve that at its most basic. So I guess how that might work is someone takes physical cash and digitalizes it by buying a credit on an app or something, and then has the ability to go back to wherever they did that transaction and take the cash back subsequently. Now, to most of us, that would seem a bit pointless, right? But if you live in an informal settlement in an emerging market and you're an informal street trader, right? If you have a good day, you are at risk of the big guy down the street coming and taxing you just by saying, I'd like half your money, please. Right? And you could say no, but, you know, it may or may not work, depending on how big and bad you are. But... but um, so actually having the security of being able to digitalise it and put it somewhere safe as opposed to hiding it under the mattress or burying it in a tin somewhere actually has a lot of, I would argue, has a lot of economic value. Also the other thing, and this is connected to that, and it presents in a classical sense a big moral dilemma is if you're that same market trader and you start the day by borrowing $20 from somebody and he says, fine, I want $21 back at the end of the day. To most of us, you'd say, you've got to be kidding me, right? You've got to be kidding me. Dollar on 20? 
one and 20 interest on a day, that's just ridiculous. You know, by the time you annualize that, that's ridiculous. However, if you have no money, if you have no capital, and you can borrow 20 and finish the day with 35 and pay one for the privilege, you've made 14, you've probably, you're probably quite happy. So again, there's a whole moral dimension to that. But again, that's where digital cash and digital wallets can start to you know, impact because Potentially, you transact, you put that money into somebody and you maybe make your money and you do the things that I've just described. But of course, then that actually starts to bring you into the banking system because if you're the provider of that service and this guy does this for a year and every day he pays back and, you know, every... You've then got a, some sort of a transactional record. And if you've got his name, if you have his... Especially if there's a national identity number, which in some many countries there are, but not all of them, and you have a mobile phone number, then you actually begin to have a digital identity around the guy, which again could skip forward. And let's just extend that one more step. If you own a mobile phone, which we can track, right, with or without, you know, which can be tracked, and you sleep, and the mobile phone every night stays in one place, and then during the daytime goes to another place, it, question mark, is that better proof of where you live and where you do your business than being able to produce a utility bill, which is a classic piece of, you know, you've probably all had to do this at some point. Someone will say, give me a passport, give me a utility bill as a proof of residence. Where your mobile phone sits every night, I would argue, is a better proof of residence than the fact that you have your name on a utility bill. I mean, personally, according to me. Now, of course, someone could, if they want to be perverse, they can argue and say, yeah, but you could lend your mobile phone and he could, like, take it away and put it somewhere. Well, yes, but, you know, you can also do weird things with utility bills as well. So if you think about all those steps, then you start to move to how you do answer your question, which is how do you bring the informal economy into the formal economy? Then you start to develop a tax base. Then you also create a bankable group of people also. Long answer to a very short question, sorry. Um, we had one here and then to you, sir, and then to you. Uh, yeah, uh, talking about unregulated systems, uh, mm -hmm. what do you feel about the potential for cryptocurrency like Bitcoin and Africa, like in the near future? It, look, it it's absolutely potentially there, but I, my, my personal view is that it'll get bypassed by other things that kind of exist and that are kind of accepted already. Um, because, you know, Bitcoin is not, a, is not as simple, for example, as airtime, right? And not as ubiquitous as airtime in those much less developed countries. But absolutely there's potential. And I'm sure there will be other alternative payment systems that start to develop um, as, as, as well. But Bitcoin certainly got, you know, certainly would appear to have a space. But, but uh, I, I personally think it's not going to work as well in many emerging markets as it does in some other places. It also has a, you know, there's also some question marks around, you know, Bitcoin and on the periphery is, yeah, some, again, some questionable stuff happens with Bitcoin around the periphery. Please. Good, I like Ghana. Yeah, I live in Ghana, so I see firsthand the practical relevance of some concepts they are talking about, like M-Pesa in Kenya, right. and solar energy, the opportunities for that. So the question is, I think last year the value of transactions was about $60 billion. Mm. Um, how is HSBC poised to take advantage of that? 
Well, we're, we're actually not involved in... First of all, we don't do retail banking in Africa, so it's largely retail banking. So the simple answer is, is um, it's not part of the business that we're, we're developing presently. One more? I guess we have time for maybe one more question. And then sure. I've got, I've got time, but I think I'm going to get hustled out. We can continue our conversation sure. upstairs. There is a reception. I think it was that gentleman was... Should we just, I'll squeeze in two. We've got, we got two okay. keen guys here. There we go. Yeah. Um, I'll be short as well. Uh, about the mobile payment, which I think is very interesting. I've got a couple of questions. Sure. Um, in, in a sense, it's making like alternative currency. Would the central banks be okay with it, uh, especially if it's as widely used as it could potentially be? Yeah. And could yeah. it spread to other regions easily, like, for example, Latin America? Um, taking the second one first, yeah, there's, you know, there's no prima facie reason I can think of why it wouldn't work in Latin America or indeed anywhere else. Central banks, are they okay with it? Um, central banks as, as purveyors of money, cash, generally get upset when other people start, start moving into their space. So I think you get a very variable, I mean, candidly, you get a very variable response. And, and you know, I've got the privilege of, of knowing quite a lot of the, cent I mean, if, knowing the central bank governors, a lot of them in Africa, certainly. And without attributing to one or the other, some of them are actually really quite um, creative around what they think they might entertain, right, in terms of, because there's, there, are, there, there are countervailing forces here, if you like, right? On the one hand, you want to include as many people in the financial system as possible in as safe a way as possible. You know, you don't want people being forced outside because being poor people forced outside the system are generally end up paying an awful lot for any kind of a financial service, right? You know, basically they just get, they get ripped off left and right, right? And that's utterly unjust and unjustifiable, right? If you look at it from any kind of policy perspective. Um, if you talk about, if you talk to um, people working for cash in most African countries and the migrant workers, by the time they take their money home, the FX rate that they get when they exchange it back into their own domestic currency, there's no resemblance to anything that's quoted on any kind of a market. It'll be 20-30% off sometimes, right? So the more creative people will say, the more we can, people we can get in, in one way, shape or form, makes it fairer and gives you fairer outcomes for basically poor people who are trying to you know, do better. At the other end, of course, you'll get the doctrinaire guy who say, we, I'm the central bank governor, I've worked all my life, I want to be the central bank governor, of course I control the money. And anything else, I'm going to try and make illegal. So you do get a, hu you get a, you get a huge spectrum, but it's more creative and more inclusive than perhaps one might assume if you're sitting in a lecture theatre wondering what central bank governors think. One more. So. Um, I suppose my question mostly relates to um, a more practical aspect of um, getting in contact with the, um, with the emerging markets from the outside. Mm -hmm. Firstly, I wondered uh, what the level of sophistication is um, in the financial system and the financial instruments that, that already exist in the market, especially in Africa in particular. Um, and particularly considering uh, certain religious views that some of the countries might hold um, that might contradict with the financial instruments and um, how those might be utilised um, in those contexts. 
Also, um, how can the foreign investors be reassured um, of the security of their investment in, in the emerging markets? And um, how can they be sure that the risk uh, is... That, uh, is that, I think that's five questions already. <laughs> I love that. You know, there's one question I'd like to ask you, composed of the following <laughs> seven unrelated subsets. <laughs> Go on, keep going, and I'll try, I'll try um, and deal with them all. <laughs> uh, that's just basically... Um, um, I suppose the second one was mainly um, whether they can be sure that their investment is secure. Okay, let me let me try let me try and tackle some of those and, and forgive me I might might not get them all. Okay, um, taking security of investment, you have risk in every investment that you do anywhere in the world, right? So you've got to think about you know what 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 it is you're dealing with and what you can control and what you can't control, right? Um, you know, U.S. Treasury is widely perceived to be risk-free. Yeah, they're utterly risk-free unless the, unless the U.S. government defaults, which is highly unlikely. But theoretically, right? Theoretically, it can happen. Um, so whether you look at government bonds, you know, different different places, you know, look at your jet, you know, take government bonds as an example. Debt GDP metrics, growth, taxation, you know, recovery, all of those things start to build in, and then you say, okay, now what am I getting? Pa- inflation, right? What am I getting paid for? What's my real return? So you can, you, can never, you can never be sure. I mean, that's just simple, the financial maths piece. But also, you know, legal systems, incredibly important. What happens if, assuming it's not the government, what happens if somebody does default and doesn't pay you, right? Do you go in and, you know, have you got a legal system which you can sue, expect it to be, you know, if a judgment's in your favour, expect to get paid? Many, many cases in emerging markets, absolutely yes. In some cases, absolutely not. Right? It just depends. So you've got to kind of assess, you know, one has to assess these risks. Um, post the 98 default in Russia, uh, I sat in a room with a bunch of international investors who were trying to get money back from one of the Russian regions. And they, they said, well, you know, we're going to come and, and seize assets. To which the Russians on the other side said, basically, they said it very politely, they said, good luck with that. Right? <laughs> you know, fundamentally, because, you know, it was a remote region and what are you going to do, Um, So you've always got to, you know, you've always got to think about those risks and there are are risks. Um, It it is to do with rule of law, it's to do with governance, it's to do with all these other things. There is no, there's no simple answer to that. What was the other piece that I missed? Uh, Financial instruments. Oh, financial, okay. So again, big scope, big, big differences. Developed markets, like in the emerging market context, like South Africa, Russia to an extent, Brazil, very easy, Brazil, South Africa, very easy to access, almost no restrictions. You bring capital in, you bring capital out, even if there's exchange controls, the money you bring in, you get a certificate to take it out, unless the rules change. Um, in stress, sometimes you have money, you have a certificate, someone will turn around to you and say, well, you know, we're just suspending payments for a while, so you do have those kind of restrictions. But the volume of trading is a very good indicator you take South African government bonds, huge volumes of trading because it's a very well-developed system. You come in, you come out, you have an FX risk, but the many big banks quote you that FX, so you've got your, your ability to come in and come out. In other markets, highly structured, you can only do it in certain ways. There are windows, there are lockups, there are whatever else. China, as a huge emerging market in debt and equity, has all sorts of different pockets of qualified financial investments and, and so on which you have to kind of follow the rules. And then other, some other very big emerging markets are extremely restricted. If you look historically, places like India have been very restricted. Historically, not so much now. Uh, most of the big emerging markets have been very restricted at various points. 
um, and you are always at risk of someone changing the rules. It does, it, it can happen in extremists. It can happen. Okay, thank you everybody. Um, thank you for the questions.